0: January 2022, the director of Stanford's Digital Economy Lab, Eric Brynholzson, published an article aptly named The Turing Trap, The Promise and Peril of Human-Like Artificial Intelligence. This was a play on the Turing Test, which posits that AI will reach human level when humans are unable to tell whether they are interacting with a person or a computer. In The Turing Trap, Brenholson argues that this imitation game has driven computer scientists to create tech that has increased productivity and living standards, but at a cost. These costs are composed of sacrifices in other areas of research that might have focused on creating more complementarity between human beings and computers. Rather than using technology to boost human productivity, which has been the pattern for most technological development, Computers are being used to replace human labor entirely. This may be good for the short term bottom lines of businesses, he says, but it can also put people out of work with no viable place to go. Instead, he says, we need to return to integrating human and machine skills in ways that boost total economic output and thus generate new demand and jobs. The negative externalities of so-so automation sit at the center of contemporary labor force issues, including the cratering of male labor force participation and shortage of well-paying and satisfying employment. Michael Strain, who directs AEI's Economic Policy Studies, joins Dr. Bryn and I to discuss what economic policy can do to encourage more innovators to aim higher and create machines that augment rather than replace human labor, and how that effort is crucial to the American dream. Eric Brynholzson and Mike Strain, thanks for joining man. Hardly Working.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: It's really great to have both of you. It's a conversation I've been looking forward to since I had a chance to Eric, speak out. Speak out in Adam Palo Alto in May, and uh, on a really critical topic relating to how we think about artificial intelligence and automation and augmentation. And we're going to get into what that what that means and the differences between them. First, though, Eric, let's have a little bit of background on you. Did you did you were the first words out of your mouth as a child? Mom and Dad, I want to be, I want to be an economist. <laughs> uh, or 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 was there an evolution in your path to becoming an economist?
2: Uh, there was definitely an evolution. My dad was a physicist, and, I, and so he always encouraged me to, to study math and, and physics. But I, I really liked some of the big questions about how the world was changing. I remember uh, reading uh, was it, Thomas More's Utopia, and I'm not sure I realized that it was supposed to be a bit of a, a satire, but I kind of took it seriously that, like, you could build this better society. And uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation Series, uh, I started a company in my 20s called Foundation Technology. Heilbrenners, worldly philosophers, they all influenced me sort of look at ways you could change the world. And uh, so that, that was – and then the other trend that, that came in was, was I was always very interested in, in, in science fiction and artificial intelligence and Doug Hofstetter. I remember writing a number of, of uh, art of books and articles that, that influenced me thinking about the sort of philosophy of how the mind works. Mm,
0: terrific. So tell us about your education. Where did you launch into your post-high school?
2: Well, I was uh, went to high school in Wayland, Massachusetts, and that was a, a great experience. And then uh, undergrad at Harvard, and then stuck around Cambridge and went to MIT for my PhD.
0: Terrific. Okay. Well, thanks, thanks for the background. I think it's very important that people hear that you know their their destinies are not written somewhere else. They they emerge, and that's kind of a part of what we're talking about today, which is your recent paper. I guess it was back in early or early part of this year. The Turing Trap: The Promise and Peril of Human Like Artificial Intelligence. Right. Uh, I, I was fascinated with the conversation um, that you or the presentation you made for our group out in Palo Alto and and i thought it raised some provocative issues that that mike would be able to help us respond to uh, so that's why i asked mike strain and for those of you who don't know mike he's a director of our economic studies program here at AEI i did another interview with him on his excellent book the american dream is not dead and uh, if you want to hear about mike's background and where he came from and how he thinks about the world in his um, in his work. Recommend that podcast to you, which you can find online. At any rate, so walk us through for a few minutes um, this paper. What led you to write it, and then uh, what what are the the key elements in it?
2: Sure. Well, for a long time, I've been thinking about how AI is becoming more and more human like and able to solve many of the challenges we're facing uh, economically and otherwise. I had a really fun conversation with James Manika over dinner at an AI conference uh, a couple of years ago, and he kind of prompted me to, to tell him some of my concerns, and, and I laid out an argument that there is an excess incentive to have machines that mimic humans as opposed to augmenting humans. And as a consequence, even though both Substituting for human labor and complementing it can be very profitable. We actually are, are steering the economy a little too much towards the substitution approach, and maybe that was not such a big deal for most of human history. But now we really have machines that are potentially very good substitutes for humans. I mean, uh, some of them uh, uh, can mimic humans almost perfectly and, and be hard to distinguish. And that's what the excuse me that's what the Turing test is is Alan Turing proposed that the ultimate test of, of machine intelligence was whether a machine could mimic and imitate a human in a way you couldn't tell the difference. As a kid, I remember thinking that was a great test. I'm not. I'm quite sure now that it's not such a good test that you can fool people pretty easily and make them think that a machine is a human. That doesn't mean that it really has intelligence. But more importantly, from an economic perspective, there are two big problems with having machines mimic humans. The first is that, in a way, it's not ambitious enough. It sounds hard, but the truth is that simply having a machine do what humans do is a pretty low ceiling, uh, but particularly if you have it focused on the tasks and the jobs that humans are doing currently. The thought experiment I do in the, uh, in the uh, paper is, I think, about the age of Daedalus, who was one of the first mythological people who uh, made... Uh, Robots, and I, I imagine it supposed that deadlifts had really succeeded in having robots that automated all the things that the ancient Greeks were able to do, whether it's weaving tunics or making clay pots or uh, using incense to help sick people. Um, you could imagine that all of those things were perfectly automated, and no one in Greece, ancient Greece, had to work anymore. Sounds pretty good, and technically, you would have infinite productivity—you know, zero labor input. Machines would do everything. But it's also easy to see that living standards wouldn't be particularly high. There'd be no iPhones or jet travel or COVID vaccines or, or any of the things that really um, are what drove higher living standards. So simply automating what we're doing at any given time is a, is a low ceiling. And likewise, if we were today to automate all the tasks, as uh, as AI researchers such as Niels Nielsen have proposed, that we should have an agenda of taking every human task and automating it that actually isn't where we're going to get much economic growth over the next decades or centuries. We need to have machines do new things that were never done before. That's one of the problems with simply automating human labor. The second problem is that it's likely to have a very profound effect on the distribution of the benefits and the distribution of income. The more you make a machine that's a substitute for human, by definition, the more it's going to drive down wages for humans who do the same task. Conversely, if a machine is a complement for humans, it will tend to drive up wages. For most of the past couple hundred years, machines have mainly been complements, not substitutes. I mean, most of us think of machines substituting for humans, but the reality is that wages have gone up for most of the past few centuries because we're able to do new things. You know, a, a guy with a bulldozer or even a shovel is able to do more than with his bare hands or a person working with a computer or a pilot with a jet They all are able to produce a lot more value with the help of this machine, and as a result, wages have gone up. So what we want to do is have machines that complement humans and drive wages up. If we make machines that substitute for humans, wages tend to fall. More of the returns go to capital versus labor. Capital is much more concentrated than labor, and in principle, it can become tremendously concentrated, And uh, so a a world where machines are very good or perfect substitutes for humans is also likely to be a world where human labor has little or no value and uh, all the benefits go to capital owners, which may or may not be extremely concentrated. And that would lead to a, a potential trap. I call it the Turing trap where economic and political power is greatly concentrated. And those who don't have economic or political power aren't in a position to to change the terms of the of the deal. And so my paper concludes by saying that, that we have a, a, a lot of incentives right now to try to create machines that are substitutes. Technologists, managers, policymakers are all steering us in that direction, but it may not be an outcome that we really want to um, go towards. And we should rethink a little bit how we can make machines that are better complements rather than substitutes.
0: Great. Okay. So, Mike, to me, this sounds like A recapitulation of an old story, an old worry about technology, Uh, that technology was going to take jobs away and uh, people were going to be thrown out of work. And it's basically the substitution argument.
1: That hasn't really been the
0: story, though, has it?
1: It hasn't been been the story in the historical record. Uh, quickly, Eric. I didn't realize that you were a uh, fellow Asimov influenced. When I was reading your your paper, which is which is excellent, and I would highly recommend it to everybody who's listening, I had in my head the image right. of R. Daniel Olivois. So that's whatever I think about uh, the Turing test. That's this, that's uh, this what is comes really to mind. hard
0: being with science fiction geeks. <laughs> I <had> to... <laughs> uh,
1: but I think I, I, I think Brent, it's a it's a, it's a good question. Eric, in in, in your paper. There's this great image of you know kind of a, a, a take on a Venn diagram and and uh, you you kind of point to the gray space outside of the circle uh, that contains activities that workers can do and you say this is where we want technology you know one way to I think ask Brent's question is why doesn't um, advance of technology make make the circle expand why aren't why doesn't technology Create opportunities for human workers to do to do new things. This, I think, has been been the story of economic history since the Industrial Revolution. Go back in time, and basically everybody's a farmer. Then farm equipment is created, and, and technological advances in agriculture um, continue. And all of a sudden, you know, well fewer than one out of every one hundred uh, workers or farmers, but Th- those people are all doing other things that, that people didn't do um, back when everybody had to be a farmer. Maybe another way of asking the question, your concerns in your paper, all of which I think are, are very reasonable, would require, I think, uh, if they were to become manifest, they would require uh, one to believe that, um, that this new wave of technology will somehow have different effects on uh, on uh, the economy and on society than previous waves have had, and uh, why why would why would that be our base case?
2: Well, those are great questions, and uh, so let me make uh, my three points. First off, there are definitely benefits to having technology that substitutes for humans. There are also benefits to having technology that complements humans. Part of my argument, uh, I'll flesh it out later, is that. Right now, we've got the balance wrong, and, and we are over overemphasizing substitution versus complement. Um, but, but to your specific question, we are actually in a situation where the technology has changed a bit. And as I mentioned, for past couple hundred years, it's mostly been complements. It's been a rising tide that raised wages. For the past 20, 30 years or so, that's not been so much the case. Median wages have stagnated. Uh, David Otter, Daron Natsumoglu And a lot of others, Larry Katz, have pointed out that uh, people with high school education or some college have seen their relative wages and their absolute wages fall since the the late 70s or or, or 80s. And there are a number of reasons for that. Part of it has to do with with globalization, tax structure. But probably the biggest reason is changes in the way that technology has been used, where a lot of those kinds of jobs are, are less in demand. So there's no iron law of economics that technology will always benefit all groups evenly or even benefit all groups, period. It's perfectly possible for some groups to do better and some to do worse. Technology sometimes is is biased in different directions. And that's been more the case recently. And, and, and thirdly, uh, part of that is really inherent in artificial intelligence in particular. The nature of it is that for technologists, and I hang out around with a lot of them, are very enamored with, how can we make the technology more human-like? How can we make a hand that's uh, an artificial hand that's similar to a human hand? How can we have a brain that thinks the same way that humans do in terms of whether it's playing chess and checkers or writing stories or solving also different tasks? And you know, there's a paper that a number of technologists are pointing me to by uh, Neil Nielsen about, hey, if you want to make real AI, let's quote get serious. And uh, he says that the real agenda of what he calls strong AI. Should be to identify each task that a human does, and he describes a set of work-related tasks, and make a machine or a general-purpose machine that can do those specific tasks that humans do. So there's a very explicit agenda to mimic humans, i.e., make make substitutes for them. Um, I think it's a, an evocative philosophical goal, but it's also one that has some of those economic risks that I, I laid out: of, of a not having a of feeling, and b Leading to a more concentration of, of uh, wealth, income, and, and political
0: power. Mike, did you want to respond to any of that? If you would like me to, I would like you to.
1: I I wonder how different this time is. I think I think these are all these are all very legitimate concerns. I think I think some of the debate over these issues doesn't adequately take into account how disruptive the, the first industrial revolution was. And I think it is, of course, the case that, you know, that the, you know, that kind of sparked the modern era of, of economic growth and wages rose and, and you know, uh, nothing has been more effective at reducing global poverty than, than, than the spread of uh, technology and, and, and the spread of the kind of market system and, and, and all these things. Um, but if you if you kind of zero in on the period of time when we we first started seeing um, technology replace textile workers or technology replace uh, other types of workers, it was hugely disruptive. I mean, this was the era that gave birth to the fiction of Charles Dickens and his portraits of of how miserable life was in cities. This was this was the era that that witnessed Luddite rebellions where at-risk workers were uh, going around to, to shops and factories and smashing up technology. This was the era that, that gave birth to the, the social science and philosophy of Karl Marx and uh, Richard Engels arguing that all that is solid melts into air and that uh, suggested they were living through a period of, of, of substantial revolution then, as as is the case now, there were occupations that, as Eric says, that were that were where workers' skills weren't complemented by technology, where they were they were substituted uh, for with technology, that saw their wages plummet. Some families were thrown into poverty across uh, multiple generations as a consequence of of advancing technology, and you know eventually England got to a, a place where. You know, pretty much everybody was better off than than they would have been without those technological advances. But that took that took decades uh, to reach that point. I kind of think we're seeing something similar now. And so then the question is, you know, once uh, and Eric has done some really pioneering work, kind of describing the the dynamics of of technological adoption, and um, you know why uh, you know why is it that we have all these inventions, but we don't see them in the productivity statistics or, you know, why is it that we have all these, these new technologies, but when you go to your doctor's office, he's still carrying a clipboard and writing things down on paper. Um, You know, but I think, I think my base case is that um, we are in a period now where technology is advancing pretty rapidly and where you're starting to see that technology kind of filter into the workplace you're starting to see that technology uh, uh, have big effects in the labor market. And I, th- I, th- I, think, I, think, I think that's been, that's been uh, a huge part of the story of deindustrialization in, in, in the United States. You know, my expectation, I think, would be that once all that works through the system, you know, similar to the situation that England found itself in after the technological advances of the Industrial Revolution worked its way through the system— that we'll be in a place where basically everybody is 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 better off than they than they would have been, and where the advance of, of technology has created new occupations and new tasks for for human beings to
0: do. So this is this is where I wanted to go next was back to this diagram that Mike was talking about in your paper that looks like uh, one googly eye uh, on a <laughs> on a in a box. So. You know, my question for you, Eric, is similar to the one that Mike just raises. What's what is it that's different about that you think is different about AI that this gray box isn't just going to keep getting bigger? It, what, yeah. Why why is it different?
2: So let me let me change the question a little bit. It, 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 I'm less about making predictions than about saying we have agency. And it, I think Mike is exactly right that there were some horrible conditions in Victorian England and, and many other parts of the world in different, in different times. And in many ways, things worked out better. But I, I think that the, the lesson I take from that is that that's because there were a number of changes that they were made in England and, and even before that in the United States in terms of investing in education and uh, creating a social safety net and creating – Uh, worker rights and 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 doing a lot of other things that were specifically designed to ameliorate some of the the downside and looking forward i'm I'm not so much in the business of saying that there's a dismal outcome ahead of us or a a great outcome ahead of us i think both the optimists and pessimists make the same mistake of putting the agency in the hands of, of machines the reality is that we have the agency about what what kind of future and there have been other countries where where things haven't worked out so well i was just reading about some of the dismal situation in argentina that seems to be on a ongoing downward spiral so I, I my my call is not that we sit back and just wait for it all to work out it's rather that we take actions that steer us towards a world where we make that that box bigger as you said where we have technologies that uh, amplify human capabilities that expand the set of things that we're working on that create more widely shared prosperity rather than technologies that steer us towards more concentration of wealth and income and economic power, or that are aimed mainly at just doing the same things we're doing today, but more cheaply, which in the end, don't create a big boost in living standards. So uh, there are lots of futures ahead of us. Recently, I have to say, I don't think the evidence is that we've been choosing the right ones as well as we could have. Um, as I mentioned, median income income for people in a lot of different educational groups has been stagnating or falling. You can quibble about some of the price deflators. But one thing I don't think you can quibble about is deaths from despair. And Case and Angus Deaton have documented that uh, mortality in for Americans for the first time is, is increasing and life expectancy is decreasing, particularly for people in some of the most economically hard hit groups and so we're seeing increased alcoholism, drug abuse, suicide, depression. So those are not things that, that price deflators are getting wrong. Those are some real evidence that there are people who aren't doing as well as they could be. And and it's it's not because we don't have better technology. It's because the technology is not being used in a way that creates the kind of shared prosperity it could be could be doing. And and so one of the reasons I wrote the Turing Trap was to highlight that there are these different paths ahead of us. And uh, in many ways, we haven't been choosing the one that to the more widely shared prosperity lately. I don't think that's inherent in the technology. I think it's possible to use the technology that complements humans, but I don't think it's automatic or I don't think it's something that we don't have to pay any attention to.
0: How much influence can we actually exercise over this question? We believe, I think we all believe that free people making free choices is what gets us advancement and innovation and brings us those higher living standards. What what makes you think, either of you, is it possible for us really to influence this very much?
2: I'd be happy to take a shot at that. Um, so I do believe that free people making free choices can often lead to, to great outcomes. I also believe in the power of, of a vision or a target, and one of the things that, that's been striking to me is when I talk to engineers. And, and you know, if, if DARPA puts up a, a challenge, a grand challenge to make a self-driving car, you're, I'm amazed at how well engineers are able to to hit that target or some of the other targets that we put out. You know, let's make a, a COVID vaccine, or let's you know the iconic, uh, let's put a, a person on the moon. And one of the things that I'd like to see is a change in emphasis from the Turing test. Let's make a machine that imitates humans you know uh to Alan Turing that the first chapter of his uh, essay would called the imitation game let's ma- let's make it imitate humans and instead let's make it augment humans i think i've been talking to engineers who say oh okay well, you know if you want us to do that let's think harder about doing that instead of making these machines that are very very human like um secondly um I, I have the same discussion with managers and entrepreneurs i teach in a business school and there's a real instinct to look at a production process, look at the humans in it and say, how can we swap out a human and swap in a machine? That's the easiest, I think, least creative way of using technology. Um, and it's also one that has the negative effect I mentioned ahead. And finally, you know, we do have a tax and set of uh, policies right now that put the thumb pretty squarely on the scale of capital versus labor. And so we don't have people freely making choices. A, if there are two entrepreneurs who each have a, a billion-dollar idea, and one of them involves employing a lot of humans, and the other one involves employing no humans but a lot of machines, then the, the one with humans is going to pay a lot more taxes. Our tax system has higher tax rates on labor than capital, and as a consequence, you know I think the first rule of taxation is you get uh, less of whatever you tax more. We're going to be steering entrepreneurs towards trying to come up with business models that are more substituting for humans and less complementing for humans. So if we didn't have those kinds of incentives, you know, mismatched incentives for technologists, for managers, and through policy, I think we would get more of a balanced outcome. And there are situations where substitution is better than complementing. But right now, we're unfortunately steering people too much towards substituting. And uh, that's, that's an outcome that, that has the negative effects, both in terms of this total size of the pie and the distribution of the pie that I described.
0: So Mike, what do you make of the incentives arguments that he's talking about in terms of tax treatment of labor versus capital and the way that that could tilt the playing field toward, in other words, we do have, he's arguing that we do have agency in this, that we can, by our choices, we're, we're creating incentives that lead to certain, that help, Shape and lead to certain outcomes. One of these is in the tax code. What do you What do you think?
1: I think that if we were to equalize the tax rate on labor and capital income, that that would discourage savings and investment relative to current law, and that that would you know arguably slow down the the. I mean, certainly you would get you would get less less savings. And that that would have uh, a deleterious effect on investment and a deleterious effect on entrepreneurship and, and, and risk taking. And remember the, you know the capital income comes from investments that have already where the income for the investment has already been taxed. And that's that's just a, a, a you know a, a product of an income tax system that has any positive tax rate on capital income will will lead to discouraging um, savings uh, just by just by the structure of it. More broadly, I. I think I think Eric's kind of general disposition toward this is uh, correct and productive. You know, there were there were big changes uh, that were made to public policy with with a pretty explicit goal of helping people to succeed economically, and you know, some of those include the the high school movement. Uh, trying to trying to right. get people to to you know go to go to high school and that's now a norm and 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 we think of it as as a given but 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 it it wasn't uh, uh, it wasn't wasn't the norm at all until until public policy decided to to create a new norm uh, and I think that you know when I look at the policy landscape I see a lot of low hanging fruit that could be picked to help workers to succeed in 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 a dynamic and changing economy you know when i when i look at, at the labor market i see i see the effects of technological change you know readily apparent the labor market of 2022 looks very different from the labor market of 1980 the share of employment in kind of middle skill occupations that pay uh, kind of wages in the in the mid range of wages ha- have gone down dramatically that's that's primarily uh, a consequence of technological advances that that, that that took place over over previous decades i think i think when i look into uh, at the outlook for the next 10, 10 or 20 years i think kind of similar types of disruptions are are very likely and you know policy has tried i think to help workers to Manage those disruptions, but there's a lot more that can be done. Uh, I think to help help workers prepare for this, to help workers um, who are who are adversely affected by it, uh, and and to help uh, young people, potential workers, to better prepare for their entry into the workforce. I don't think that what we want to do is to put too heavy of a thumb uh, on the scale against. Technological advancement—it's become somewhat common to hear people call for, you know, taxing robots or taxing that sort of uh, investment in technology. I think I think that's not something we want to do. Um, I don't think that it would make sense to increase rates of capital income taxation with the explicit goal of of helping helping workers. I think uh, there you know there may be other reasons to do that, but you know, that's. Um, uh, that would be kind of an indirect path, uh, uh, and it would be you know it, it it would it would be a tax on savings, which is which is obviously several steps removed from you know a tax on buying robots, but but um, uh, has 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 a somewhat similar thrust. You know, in general, helping helping workers prepare for this, and then helping workers who have been adversely affected by it to get back on their feet, I think are are are, are good things to do, and, and and there are a lot of lessons from. From history that we can point to
0: so Eric I want to I want to give you a chance to uh, respond to that particularly on this question sure. Of, sure. of penalizing sort of capital formation
2: yeah well I, I think I agree with about 98% of, of what Michael said I, I, like him I, I'm, a, I'm a technological optimist and I'd like to see more technological progress and, and I don't want to see the thumb on the scale as it is right now towards either capital or labor like to see it more, more balanced. But uh, t- to be frank, I think, you know, tweaking the tax policy is, is the uh, of the, uh, pretty low on the list of, of the things that we could do. It, Michael mentioned uh, uh, education. America led the world in education, not just with the high school movement, but before that in the 1800s with, with in, uh, elementary school when, when, when Europe wasn't doing that. And that was a big reason why America grew so much faster and had more equal and, and later. Um, there was um, the GI Bill, getting people to go to college. And so um, investing in human capital is more important. Uh, there's far more human capital in the economy, a couple tr- trillion, sorry, $200 trillion worth roughly in the U.S. economy. So it, it totally dominates physical capital. And it's something we want to make an investment in and make it easy to invest in. I also think that the kind of dynamism that Mike talked about is incredibly important the you know, dynamism, uh, entrepreneurship, new companies being started, people moving from one company to another, people moving from one part of the country to another part, they've all gone down dramatically, as, as Steve Davis, and John Halterwanger, and others have, have documented over the past 20 or 30 years. And America's never succeeded by freezing in place jobs from the past. It's always been this dynamism of creation of new tasks, new jobs, new ways of working. And we could do a lot more to make that easier. You know, occupational licensing, I've written about how that slowed things down and boosting entrepreneurship and, and tech and uh, innovation and investment is thing we can do. So all those things, I think, would help us in that direction. And last but not least, probably most, is it's really a, a, a cultural and, and vision uh, statement that when I talk to the technologists and, and entrepreneurs, having a vision towards this kind of um, complementing and creating new goods and services rather than a cost-based, how can we replace workers? How can we uh, focus on doing the same things more cheaply? It's a a mindset that I I find people are willing to embrace and that they think a little bit, it takes a little more creativity, but that kind of focus ends up creating a lot more value and a lot more shared prosperity than one that's uh, in a way kind of pessimistic that we, we need to just uh, replace labor with, with, um, with technology. So th- there's a, a whole suite of things we can do that steers in that direction. And ultimately I'm uh, the reason I, I wrote the paper is because I'm optimistic that you know you, we can actually steer the course of history and, and that people can actually go to very different directions if they make an effort to do it. And, and I want to help, Uh, make the case that we have a a brighter future ahead of us if we embrace the approach of using technology to complement humans and expand the set of possibilities.
0: So uh, I'm at a distinct disadvantage here, both because I'm not a science fiction guru and because (laughs) I'm not an an economist, but I I, I don't understand why uh, equalizing the treatment of labor expenditures versus capital expenditures necessarily entails either raising rates uh, on capital or that. That's what I don't understand. Why? What, what's well, the, what's the economic. This,
2: let me, let me just say yeah. a little bit more about, about that. So yeah. uh, look, my favorite taxes is, are, are not capital or labor taxes. Uh, if you, if you have to tax, I'd start with the taxes on on carbon congestion and anything that we want to have less of. If you tax them, you tend to get less of it. There are a lot of negatives in society that we could tax or on inelastic things like land. But then after that, I would go with um, with consumption taxes, value-added yeah, yeah. taxes. Uh, and and those are another great way to And they can be done in a progressive way. I know some people are concerned about that. And um, you can fund most most of our needs out of those two before you even get capital labor.
1: Yes. If you are going
2: to tax capital labor, then, uh, you know, there's a debate on this. It's long in the literature. But, but I, I've having read that, I've come down the same side as, as my friend, my colleague, Daron Acemoglu, that we shouldn't be taxing them unequally. We should do what Ronald Reagan did and uh, the Tax Reform Act of 1986 where they went ahead and equalized those. But but I just – I don't want to necessarily lead with that. It's like that's not my main – Uh, My main argument, uh, there's that long list I went through before, I'm not going to go through it again, of all the other things that we can do policy-wise. And ultimately, just having our eyes open to the vision of complementing and creating new goods and services and having that as a goal, um, I I think, opens up a different way of looking at the problem.
0: So Mike's been interjecting with uh, enthusiasm enthusiasm for these ideas. Do you (laughs) want to expand on any of that enthusiasm or should we... Go on to the next uh, topic.
1: You know, it, it it is somewhat related. So I um I think it's an important economic lesson that if you tax something, you get less of it. You know, there are there are things that we clearly want less of. I think one thing that we want less of is carbon emissions, for example. And you know, for some reason, we neither uh, political party seems to want to support a, a carbon tax. You know, Eric's absolutely right. You have to pick something to tax and. We've decided on taxing income in the United States. Uh, An alternative would be to tax consumption. And one of the reasons that I would be enthusiastic about making that switch is because that would reduce the penalty on savings that exists in an income tax system. uh, And that would presumably lead to more investment. Uh, And because I am, I think, fundamentally an optimist uh, about technological advancement, that that would uh, on the margin, facilitate technological advancement, and so I think, you know, it it, it may seem kind of unrelated. You know, the, the, these questions about artificial intelligence and the labor market and 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 the future of technology, you know, seem seem distant from from uh, tax policy. But uh, but there are there are some some important ways in which they're related. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they're distant at all. Um, so I mean, the same thing with carbon taxes, yeah. right? If you if you put a tax on carbon. You raise the price of carbon emissions, and that encourages uh, entrepreneurs and, and inventors to figure out ways to create alternative sources of energy. Exactly. I mean, you you know you you reduce emissions, which which I think wouldn't have much of an of an impact on the global climate unless you could convince China and India and some other nations to join you. But 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 what it would do is it would it would act as a as, as an additional incentive to create alternative sources of energy that that then could be adopted by uh, by all of these uh, other nations. And, and that could have a, a huge impact on on the climate.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Greg Manku calls it the, the Pigoo Club and uh, he's signed up <laughs> a, a lot of economists yeah. and uh, and uh, policymakers uh, who are on board with that
0: vision. So I want to I want to shift to the other uh, incentive challenge that that you highlight uh, in terms of substitution versus augmentation of labor because I, I uh, of all of the incentives that a business owner has and labor being the 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 most costly the highest uh, or biggest cost item in any for any company is what they pay their 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 labor. It seems like it is just irresistible, this idea of substitution from the standpoint of cutting costs and in a way that can go immediately or almost immediately to the bottom line. Do I have that right or is, there, uh, is it more complicated than that?
2: It is irresistible and, and it doesn't take a ton of creativity. And let me just also say, there are a lot of dirty, dull, dangerous jobs that I think would be great if we automated them out of existence. Uh, not everybody has to do some of those, uh, those unpleasant jobs in, in society. But ultimately, when I, when I teach my MBA students, I, I encourage them to try to think a little more off the box about not taking what we're currently doing and, and swapping. it. And let me give you another thought experiment from the, uh, from the paper. Um, in, in the 1990s, uh, Bezos looked at bookstores and said, hey, we could automate what bookstores are doing. But imagine how incredibly boring it would have been if he had gone to a bookstore and took a robot cashier and put it where the human cashier was and left everything else the same. And maybe, you know, with some effort he could have um, replaced most or all of the labor in a bookstore by having a robot check out your books uh, when you buy things. But clearly that would not have fulfilled the, the, the real upside potential of technology. Instead, they went to a whole different kind of business. They reimagined what a bookstore would look like and had, you know, live inside your browser and, uh, and hundreds of millions of homes instead of physical locations. And that's the kind of reimagining of the production process, of new business processes, new ways of organizing work that ultimately creates a lot more value than the one-for-one swapping. And I just see too many of my, my students, too many of the managers that I consult with uh, taking too narrow a uh, perspective of what it means to use technology to automate work. And you can go back to, to electricity, one of my, my favorite examples, and, and, and you know, your, your listeners may have heard the story before, that it took about 30 or 40 years before electricity led to significant productivity improvements because at first they simply swapped out electric motors for the existing motors and, uh, the, and the steam engines. And it was only when they reimagined what a factory would look like you started getting 100% 200 percent productivity gains so the challenge for technologists for managers for all of us is to think more creatively about the new possibilities and not simply do more of the same with uh, with uh, uh, cheaper technologies
0: yeah I mean I, 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 I agree that that's what we ought to be doing but I you know I, I, I spent a little time in the private sector and I know, not not nearly as much as I spent in the public sector, but a little time in the private sector. And what I know motivates everybody are quarterly earnings reports and and hitting your metrics so you you don't get punished by the market for for not being as profitable as you could be. And it's not uh, the, the, it's it's like asking how high is how high is up in some ways. So I I just what what the world should be is not what the world is. And I'm, I'm really perplexed. Uh, either of you please enlighten me on this, you know, exhorting people to take a different approach to technology is great, but uh, it's still going to be ruled by a short term, you know, short term incentives. So I, I'm wondering if either of you have a thought on that.
1: People respond okay, to, to, persuasion they, re- they respond to, to these incentives and um, you know there's there's a competition uh, between businesses for how to use to do exactly what Eric asks his students to do and and, and ask the businesses he works with to do uh, there's a competition to figure out how to use technology in the most profitable way and the companies that that figured out, a new vision for how factories work a few decades after electricity was invented are the ones that captured those gains and became wildly profitable. The right. entrepreneur in the Pacific Northwest who thought to himself, you know, uh, uh, we're going to reimagine uh, the bookstore and it's going to exist on the internet and not in a physical place has uh, has has been able to use technology to become fabulously wealthy and create a, a, an extremely profitable company. Uh, And so it's not, you know, it's not, it's not economists or public intellectuals or public figures, uh, you know, telling managers, you know, what they should do in the social interest. It's driven by these more kind of fundamental market competitive forces. Eric, did you want to? Well,
2: so let me, uh, yeah, let me, let me build that. I'm an economist. I I 100% believe in the power of incentives and that's one of the reasons we spent some time talking about tax policy, talking about education policy, talking about occupational licensing, and all the other things that, that are, you know are, can be fairly hard incentives to do things one way or another. But I, I also, uh, I'm a professor, I also believe in the power of ideas, and I've seen time and time again that ideas and vision make a big difference in how people direct themselves. I, uh, I don't think it could be that idealistic to see that the people who decided to go to the moon or who decided to make the self-driving car or, or uh, had other um, visions like that, put a ton of effort into it. I see my, my colleagues at MIT and Stanford work nights and weekends on uh, a vision because they want to do something really cool and exciting and, and change the world. And part of that is because it can be personally very profitable or beneficial. And, and you know, Jeff Bezos made a lot of money Uh, Part of it, I I really wouldn't underestimate that people really want to change the world to to make it better. And and if you tell them that there are different outcomes, some of them lead to a better world and some of them don't. Um, My experience is a lot of people will put a lot of effort into trying to make the world a better place. Um, uh, Here in Silicon Valley, where I am now, I'm constantly running into entrepreneurs. And they tell me, and I think they're very sincere, that they and their, their teams are really focused on making the world a better place. So I wouldn't discount any of those three motivations. You know, the, the, the hard incentives, the, the, the individual vision to, to make themselves better off, and also the, uh, the uh, vision of, of making the world a better place, they all can be important. And, and helping to provide a vision and a set of ideas for how you can do things differently, I believe it does make a difference. Uh, ultimately, it may be the biggest thing that makes a difference over the short-term incentives. And in terms of short term versus long term, term, I got to say I've been on the boards of several companies. I was on a company that was very frustrating. They were very focused on hitting the quarterly numbers from Wall Street each month, uh, each each quarter. And um, and I tried to tell them that I'd spent some time hanging out with the folks at at Amazon, and there they they really do had a different culture, which was focused on long term customer value. I talked to so many executives there, and it wasn't just the CEO giving that vision. Uh, people up and down the company um, understood that their job was to maximize the long-term value for the customer. Ultimately, as Michael was saying, that led to a lot of value for just about everybody uh, in the company, especially the, the founder. Um, but there are different cultures in different companies. And, and I think the ones that are more focused on on long-term customer value in the, in the end end up doing better, not just for themselves, but for, for their customers as well.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to think on here. You know, just in terms of getting this, the the mix of policies right in terms of managing this transition. Uh, when I we were talking about, you know the the England of Charles Dickens, mm-hmm. you know it's not unusual to hear a job in an Amazon warehouse compared to the uh, the, the factories of of England during the Industrial Revolution. Uh, that's, it's kind of an absurd comparison, but it, 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 it's, uh it's historically relative to the, to those, the challenges are historically relative. These are, you know, often uh, these new jobs are not necessarily, that are being created aren't necessarily the most rewarding. Uh, you know, what strikes me out of this is uh, again, I, 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 I want to encourage you, Eric, and in, uh, in like foster trying to foster this vision because I think it is an important vision. And at the same time, I want to I want to be realistic about what it is that is going to happen in and of its own uh, out of its own momentum. You know, and a, a kind of appreciation I think for you know the 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 great industrialists of the of the last century. They didn't set out to raise American living standards. Um, they set out to make automobiles faster and better and and cheaper, and we got better living standards out of that, you know, by almost by accident. And so, I I think I I agree that we need to press forward on all all three of these fronts. You know, allowing choice and decision and uh, leadership uh, from private sector, getting our policies aligned as much as we can, but then also just relying on the fact that producing this much wealth um, is ultimately, you know, kind of the the, la- the ultimate bottom line of raising, um, raising living standards. At any rate, I thank you very much, Eric, for joining us today on Hardly Working. It's been a fascinating conversation. And I'm um, looking forward to staying in touch with you and following your work and all of the other great work that's being done on artificial intelligence out at Stanford.
2: Well, my pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for in- inviting me to join you.
0: Um, thanks so much. Excellent.
1: Yeah, Eric, good to be with you.
2: Absolutely. Uh, and thanks, Michael, for, uh, for joining the National Academy's uh, Committee as well. We'll, uh, we'll dive in deeper on some of these. Things.
1: Yes, for sure. Absolutely. I'm sure
0: it'll be okay. excellent.
1: Yes, it'll be, <laughs> it'll be productivity <laughs> decreasing.
0: Thanks a lot, Eric. See you guys. Thank See you ya. again. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well It feels like you're hardly working.